You're listening to the However Improbable podcast. From the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, this is The Adventure of the Copper Beaches by Arthur Conan Doyle. Narrated by Sarah Gold. To the man who loves art for its own sake, remarked Sherlock Holmes, tossing aside the advertisement sheet of the Daily Telegraph, it is frequently in its least important and lowliest manifestations that the keenest pleasure is to be derived. It is pleasant to me to observe, Watson, that you have so far grasped this truth and that these little records of our cases, which you've been good enough to draw up, and, I am bound to say, occasionally to embellish, you have given prominence not so much to the many causes celebre and sensational trials in which I have figured, but rather to those incidents which maybe have been trivial in themselves, but which have given room for those faculties of deduction and of logical synthesis, which I have made my special province. And yet, said I, smiling, I cannot quite hold myself absolved from the charges of sensationalism which has been urged against my records. You have erred, perhaps, he observed, taking up a glowing cinder with the tongs and lighting it with a long cherrywood pipe which was wont to replace his clay when he was in a disputatious rather than a meditative mood. You have erred, perhaps, in attempting to put color and life into each of your statements instead of confining yourself to the task of placing upon record that severe reasoning from cause to effect, which is really the only notable feature about the thing. It seems to me I have done you full justice in the matter, I remarked with some coldness, for I was repelled by the egotism which I had more than once observed to be a strong factor in my friend's singular character. No, it is not selfishness or conceit, said he, answering, as was his wont, my thoughts rather than my words. If I claim full justice for my art, it is because it is an impersonal thing, a thing beyond myself. Crime is common. Logic is rare. Therefore, it is upon the logic, rather than upon the crime, that you should dwell. You have degraded what should have been a course of lectures into a series of tales. It was a cold morning of the early spring, and we sat after breakfast on either side of a cheery fire in the old room at Baker Street. A thick fog rolled down between the lines of dun-colored houses, and the opposing windows loomed like dark, shapeless blurs through the heavy yellow wreaths. Our gas was lit and shone on the white cloth and glimmer of china and metal, for the table had yet been cleared. Sherlock Holmes had been silent all the morning, dipping continuously into the advertisement columns of a succession of papers until at last, having apparently given up the search, he had emerged into no sweet temper to lecture me upon my literary shortcomings. At the same time, he remarked after a pause, during which he had sat puffing at his long pipe and gazing down into the fire, you can hardly be open to a charge of sensationalism. For of all of these cases which you have been so kind as to interest yourself in, a fair proportion do not treat of crime in its legal sense at all. The small matter in which I endeavored to help the King of Bohemia, the singular experience of Ms. Mary Sutherland, the problem connected with the man with the twisted lip, and the incident of the noble bachelor were all matters which are outside the pale of the law. But in avoiding the sensational, I fear you may have bordered on the trivial... The end may have been so, I answered, but the methods I hold to have been novel and of interest. Pshaw, my dear fellow, what do the public, the great unobservant public, who could hardly tell a weaver by his tooth or a compositor by his left thumb, care about the finer shades of analysis and deduction? But indeed, if you are a trivial, I cannot blame you for the days of the great cases are past. 
Man, or at least criminal man, has lost all enterprise and originality. As to my own little practice, it seems to be a degenerating into an agency for recovering lost lead pencils and giving advice to young ladies from boarding schools. I think I have touched bottom at last. However, this note I had this morning marks my zero point. I fancy. Read it. He tossed a crumpled paper across to me. It was dated from Montague Place upon the preceding evening and ran thus. Dear Mr. Holmes, I am very anxious to consult you as to whether I should or should not accept a situation which has been offered to me as governess. I shall call at half past ten tomorrow if I do not inconvenience you. Yours faithfully, Violet Hunter. Do you know the young lady, I asked? Not I. It is half past ten now. Yes, and I have no doubt that is her ring. It may turn out to be of more interest than you think. You remember that the affair of the blue carbuncle, which appeared to be a mere whim at first, developed into a serious investigation. It may be so in this case also. Well, let us hope so, but our doubts will very soon be solved, for here, unless I am much mistaken, is the person in question. As he spoke, the door opened and a young lady entered the room. She was plainly but neatly dressed, with a bright, quick face, freckled like a plover's egg, and with the brisk manner of a woman who has her had who has had her own way to make in the world. "'You will excuse my troubling you, I am sure,' said she, as my companion rose to greet her. "'But I have had a strange experience, and I have no parents or relations of any sort for whom I could ask advice. I thought that perhaps you would be kind enough to tell me what I should do.' "'Pray take a seat, Miss Hunter. I shall be happy to do anything that I can to serve you.' I could see that Holmes was favorably impressed by the manner and speech of his new client. He looked her over in his searching fashion and then composed himself, with his lids drooping and his fingertips together, to listen to her story. "'I have been a governess for five years,' said she, "'in the family of Colonel Spence Monroe, but two months ago the colonel received an appointment at Halifax in Nova Scotia and took his children over to America with him, so I found myself without a situation. I advertised and I answered advertisements, but without success.' At last, the little money which I had saved began to run short, and I was at my wit's end for what I should do. There is a well-known agency for governesses in the West End called Westaways, and there I used to call about once a week in order to see whether anything had turned up which might suit me. Westaway was the name of the founder of the business, but it is really managed by Ms. Stoper. She sits in her little office, and the ladies who are seeking employment wait in an anteroom, and then are shown in one by one, where she consults her ledgers and sees whether she has anything which might suit them. Well, when I was called last week, I was shown into the little office as usual, but I found that Miss Stoper was not alone. A prodigiously stout man with a very smiling face and a great heavy chin, which rolled down in folds upon fold over his throat, sat at her elbow with a pair of glasses on his nose, looking very earnestly at the ladies who entered. As I came in, he gave quite a jump in his chair and turned quickly to Miss Stoper. That will do, said he. I could not ask for anything better. Capital, capital. He seemed quite enthusiastic and rubbed his hands together in the most genial fashion. He was such a comfortable-looking man that it was quite a pleasure to look at him. "'You are looking for a situation, miss?' he asked. "'Yes, sir.' "'As governess?' "'Yes, sir.' "'And what salary do you ask?' "'I had four pounds a month in my last place with Colonel Spence Monroe.' "'Oh, tut, tut. Sweating. Rank sweating,' he cried." throwing his fat hands out in the air like a man who is, at a boil, who is in a boiling passion. How could anyone offer up so pitiful a sum to a lady with such attractions and accomplishments? 
My accomplishments, sir, may be less than you imagine, said I. A little French, a little German, music and drawing. Tut, tut, he cried. That is all quite beside the question. The point is, have you or have you not the bearing and deportment of a lady? There it is in a nutshell. If you have not, you are not fitted for the rearing of a child who may someday play a considerable part in the history of the country. But if you have, why then, how could any gentleman ask you to condescend to accept anything under the three figures? Your salary with me, madam, would commence at 100 pounds a year. You may imagine, Mr. Holmes, that to me, destitute as I was, such an offer seemed almost too good to be true. The gentleman, however, seeing perhaps the look of incredulity upon my face, opened a pocketbook and took out a note. It is also my custom, said he, smiling in the most pleasant fashion until his eyes were just two little shining slits amid the white creases of his face, to advance to my young ladies half their salary beforehand, so they may meet any little expenses of their journey and their... It seemed to me that I had never met so fascinating and so thoughtful a man. As I was already in debt to my tradesmen, the advance was a great inconven was a great convenience. And yet there was something unnatural about the whole transaction that which made me wish to know a little more before I quite committed myself. May I ask where you live, sir? said I. Hampshire. Charming rural place, the Copper Beaches, five miles on the west side of Winchester. It is the most lovely country, my dear young lady, and the dearest old country house. And my duties, sir, I should be glad to know what they would be. One child, one dear little romper, just six years old. Oh, if you could see him killing cockroaches with a slipper. Smack, smack, smack. Three gone before you could wink. He leaned back in his chair and laughed his eyes into his head again. I was a little startled at the nature of the child's amusement, but the father's laughter made me think that perhaps he was joking. My sole duties, then, I asked, are to take charge of a single child. No, no, not the sole, not the sole, my dear young lady, he cried. Your duties would be, as I'm sure your good sense would suggest, to obey any little commands my wife might give, provided always they were such commands as a lady might with propriety obey. You see no difficulty, huh? I should be happy to make myself useful. Quite so, in dress now. For example, we are fatty people, you know, fatty but kind-hearted. If you were asked to wear any dress, what we might give you, you would not object to our little whim, huh? No, I said, considerably astonished at his words. Or to sit here or sit there, that would not be offensive to you. Oh, no, or to cut your hair quite short before you come to us. I could hardly believe my ears. As you may observe, Mr. Holmes, my hair is somewhat luxuriant, and of a rather peculiar tint of chestnut. It has been considered artistic. I could not dream of sacrificing it in this offhand fashion. I am afraid that's quite impossible, I said. He had been watching me eagerly out of his small eyes, and I could see a shadow pass over his face as he spoke. I am afraid it is quite essential, said he. It is a little fancy of my wives, and ladies' fancies, you know, madam, ladies' fancies must be consulted. And so you won't cut your hair. No, sir, I really could not, I answered firmly. Ah, very well, then that quite settles the matter. It is a pity, because in other respects you would have done quite nicely. In that case, Miss Stoper, I had best inspect a few more of your young ladies. The manageress had sat all this while, busy with her papers, without a word to either of us, but she glanced at me now with so much annoyance upon her face that I could not help suspecting she had lost a handsome commission through my refusal. Do you desire your name to be kept upon the books? She said. If you please, Miss Stoper. Well, really, it seems rather useless since you refuse the most excellent offers in this fashion, she said sharply. You could hardly expect us to exert ourselves to find another such opening for you. Good day to you, Miss Hunter. 
She struck a gong upon the table, and I was shown out by the page. Well, Mr. Holmes, when I got back to my lodgings and found this little enough in the cupboard and two or three bills upon the table, I began to ask myself whether I had not done a very foolish thing. After all, if these people had strange fads and expected obedience in the most extraordinary matters, they were at least ready to pay for their eccentricity. Very few governesses in England are getting one hundred pounds a year. Besides, what use was my hair to me? Many people are improved by wearing it short, and perhaps I should be among the number. Next day, I was inclined to think I had made a mistake, and by the day after, I was sure of it. I had almost overcome my pride so far as to go back to the agency and inquire whether the place was still open when I received this letter from the gentleman himself. I have it here, and I will read it to you. The Copper Beaches, near Winchester. Dear Miss Hunter, Miss Stoper has very kindly given me your address, and I write from here to ask you whether you have reconsidered my, your decision. My wife is very anxious you should come, for she has been so much attracted by my description of you. We are willing to give £30 a quarter, or £120 a year, so as to recompense you for any little inconvenience which our fads may cause you. They are not very exacting after all. My wife is fond of a particular shade of electric blue, and would like you to wear such a dress indoors in the mornings. You need not, however, go to the expense of purchasing one, as we have one belonging to our dear daughter Alice, now in Philadelphia, who would, I should think, fit you very well. Then, as to sitting here or there, or amusing yourself in any manner indicated, that need cause you no inconvenience. As regards to your hair, it is no doubt a pity, especially as I could not help remarking its beauty during our short interview. But I am afraid that I must remain firm upon this point, and I only hope that the increased salary may recompense you for the loss. Your duties, as far as the child is concerned, are fairly light. Now do try to come, and I shall meet you with the dog cart at Winchester. Let me know your train. Yours faithfully, Jeffro Rucastle. That is the letter which I have just received, Mr. Holmes, and my mind is made up, for I will accept it. I thought, however, that before taking the final step, I should like to submit the whole matter to your consideration. "'Well, Miss Hunter, if your mind is made up, that settles the question,' said Holmes, smiling. "'But she will not advise me to refuse. "'I confess that it is not the situation which I should like to see a sister of mine apply for. "'What is the meaning of it all, Mr. Holmes?' Ah, "'I have no data. I cannot tell. Perhaps you yourself have formed some opinion.' "'Well, there seems to me the only possible solution. "'Mr. Rucastle seems to be a very good, kind-hearted man.' It is not possible that his wife is a lunatic, that he desires to keep the matter quiet for fear she should be taken to an asylum, and that he humors her fancies in every way in order to prevent an outbreak. That is a possible solution. In fact, as matters stand, it is the most probable one. But in any case, it does not seem to be a nice household for a young lady. But the money, Mr. Holmes, the money. Well, yes, of course, the pay is good. Too good. That is what makes me uneasy. Why should they give you £120 a year when they could have had their pick for £40? There must be some strong reason behind. I thought that if I told you the circumstances, you would understand afterwards if I wanted your help. I should feel so much stronger if I felt you were at the back of me. Oh, you may carry that feeling away with you. I assure you that your little problem promises to be a most interesting one, which has come my way for some months. There is something distinctly novel about some of the features. If you should find yourself in doubt or in danger... Danger? What danger do you foresee? Holmes shook his head gravely. It would cease to be a danger if we could define it, he said. But at any time, day or night, a telegram will bring me down to your help. That is enough. She rose briskly from her chair with the anxiety all swept from her face. I shall go down to Hampshire quite easily in my mind. I shall write to Mr. Rucastle at once, sacrifice my poor hair tonight, and start for Winchester tomorrow. 
With a few grateful words to Holmes, she bade us good night and bustled off upon her way. At least, said I, as we heard her quick, firm steps descending the stairs, she seems to be a young lady who is very well able to take care of herself. And as she would need to be, said Holmes gravely, I am much mistaken if we do not hear for her before many days are past. It was not very long before my friend's prediction was fulfilled. A fortnight went by, during which I frequently found my thoughts turning in her direction, and wondering what strange side alley of human experience this lonely woman had strayed into. The unusual salary, the curious conditions, the light duties, all pointed to something abnormal. Though whether a fad or a plot, or whether the man were a philanthropist or a villain, it was all beyond my powers to determine. As to Holmes, I observed that he sat frequently for half an hour on end, with knitted brows and an abstracted air, but he swept the matter away with a wave of his hand when I mentioned it. Data, 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 he cried impatiently. I cannot make bricks without clay. And yet he would always wind up by muttering that no sister of his should ever have accepted such a situation. The telegram, which we eventually received, came late one night, just as I was thinking of turning in, and Holmes was settling down to one of those all-night chemical researches which he frequently indulged in. When I would leave him stooped over a retort and a test tube at night and find him in the same position when I came down to breakfast in the morning. He opened the yellow envelope and then glanced at the message, threw it across to me. Just look up the trains in Bradshaw, he said, and turned to his chemical studies. The summons was a brief and urgent one. Please be at the Black Swan Hotel at Winchester at midday tomorrow, it said. Do come. I am at my wit's end. Hunter. Will you come with me? asked Holmes, glancing up. I should wish to. Just look it up, then. There is a train at half-past nine, said I, glancing over my Bradshaw. It's due at Winchester at eleven-thirty. That will do very nicely. Then perhaps I'd better postpone my analysis of the acetone, as we may need to be at our best in the morning. By eleven o'clock the next day, we were well upon our way to the old English capital. Holmes had been buried in the morning papers all the way down, but after we passed the Hampshire border, he threw them down and began to admire the scenery. It was an ideal spring day, a light blue sky flecked with little fleecy white clouds drifting across from west to east. The sun was shining very brightly, and yet there was an exhilarating nip in the air, which set an edge to the man's energy. All over the countryside, away to the rolling hills around Aldershot, the little red and gray roofs of the farm steadings peeped out amid the light greens of new foliage. Are they not fresh and beautiful, I cried, with all the enthusiasm of a man fresh from the fogs of Baker Street. But Holmes shook his head gravely. Do you know, Watson, said he, that one of the curses of a mind with a turn like mine is that much look at everything with reference to my own special subject. You look at these scattered houses and you are impressed by their beauty. I look at them and the only thought which comes to me is a feeling of their isolation and of the impunity with which crime may be committed there. Good heavens, I cried. Who would associate crime with these dear old homesteads? They always fill me with a certain horror. It's my belief, Watson, founded upon my experience, that the lowest and vilest alleys in London do not present a more dreadful record of sin than this smiling and beautiful countryside. You horrify me. But the reason's very obvious. The pressure of public opinion can do in the town what the law cannot accomplish— there is no lane so vile than the scream of a tortured child or the thud of a drunkard's blow does not beget sympathy and indignation among the neighbors, and then the whole machinery of justice is ever so close that a word of complaint can set it going, and there is but a step between the crime and the dock. 
but look at these lovely houses, each in its own fields, filled for the most part with ignorant poor folk who know little of the law. Think of the deeds of hellish cruelty, the hidden wickedness which may go on, year in, year out, in such places, and none the wiser. Had this lady who appeals to us for help gone to live in Winchester, I should never have had a fear for her. It is the five miles of country which makes the danger. Still, it is clear she's not personally threatened. No, if she can come to Winchester to meet us, then she can get away. Quite so. She has her freedom. What can be the matter, then? Can you suggest no explanation? I have devised seven separate explanations, each of which would cover the facts as we know them, but which of these is correct can only be determined by the fresh information which we shall no doubt find waiting for us. Well, there's the tower of the cathedral, and we shall soon learn all Miss Hunter has to tell. The Black Swan is an inn of repute in the high street, at no distance from the station, and there we found the young lady waiting for us. She had engaged a sitting room, and her lunch awaited us upon the table. "'I'm so delighted you've come,' she said, earnestly. "'It's so very kind of you, but indeed I do not know what I should do. Your advice will be altogether invaluable to me. Pray tell us what has happened to you.' "'I will do so, and I must be quick, for I have promised Mr. Rucastle to be back before three. I got his leave to come into town this morning, though he little knew for what purpose.' Let us have everything in its due order, said Holmes. Holmes thrust his long legs out towards the fire and composed himself to listen. Holmes thrust his long, thin legs out towards the fire and composed himself to listen. In the first place, I must say that I have met Tom Hole with no actual ill treatment from Mr. and Mrs. Rucastle. It is only fair to them to say that, but I cannot understand them, and I am not easy in my mind about them. What can you not understand? the reasons for their conduct, but you shall have it all just as it occurred. When I came down, Mr. Rucastle met me here and drove me in his dog cart to the Copper Beaches. It is, as he said, beautifully situated, but it is not beautiful in itself, for it is a large square block of a house, whitewashed, all, but all stained and streaked with damp and bad weather. There are grounds around it, wood on three sides, and on the fourth, a field which slopes down to the Southampton High Road, which curves past about a hundred yards from the front door. This ground in front belongs to the house, but the woods all round are part of Lord Southerton's preserves. A clump of copper beeches immediately in front of the hall door has given the name to the place. I was driven over by my employer, who was as amiable as ever, and was introduced by him that evening to, the wife, to his wife and the child. There was no truth, Mr. Holmes, in the conjecture which seemed to be, which seemed to us to be probable in your rooms at Baker Street. Mrs. Rucastle is not mad. I found her to be a silent, pale-faced woman, much younger than her husband, no more than thirty, I should think. Well, he can hardly be less than forty-five. From their conversation, I have gathered that they have been married about seven years, that he was a widower, and that his only child by the first wife was the daughter who had gone to Philadelphia. Mr. Rucastle told me in private the reason why she left them was she had an unreasoning aversion to her stepmother. As the daughter could not have been less than twenty, I can imagine that her position must have been uncomfortable with her father's young wife. Mrs. Rucastle seemed to me colorless in mind as well in feature. She impressed me neither favorably nor the reverse. She was a non-entity. It was easy to see she was passionately devoted to her husband and to her little son. Her light gray eyes wandered continually from one to the other, noting every little want and forestalling it if possible. He was kind to her, also, in his bluff, boisterous fashion, and on the whole they seemed to be a happy couple. And yet she had some secret sorrow, this woman. She would often be lost in deep thought with the saddest look upon her face. More than once I had surprised her in tears— I had thought sometimes it was the disposition of her child which weighed upon her mind, for I have never met so utterly spoiled and so ill-tempered a little creature. 
He is small for his age, with a head which is quite disproportionately large. His whole life appears to be spent in an alternation between savage fits of passion and gloomy intervals of sulking. Giving pain to any creature weaker than himself seems to be his one idea of amusement, and he shows quite remarkable talent for planning the capture of mice, little birds, and insects. But I would rather not talk about the creature, Mr. Holmes, and indeed he has little to do with my story. I'm glad of all the details, remarked my friend, whether they seem to you to be relevant or not. I shall try not to miss anything of importance. The one unpleasant thing about the house which struck me at once was the appearance and conduct of the servants. They are only two, a man and his wife, Toller, for that is his name, is a rough, uncouth man with grizzled hair and whiskers, and a perpetual smell of drink. Twice since I have been with him he has been quite drunk, and yet Mr. Rucastle seems to take no notice. His wife is a very tall and strong woman with a sour face, as sour as Mrs. Rucastle and much less amiable. They are a most unpleasant couple, but fortunately I spent most of my time in the nursery in my own room, which are next to each other in one corner of the building. For two days after my arrival at the Copper Beaches, my life was very quiet. On the third, Mrs. Rucastle came down just after breakfast and whispered something to her husband. Oh, yes, said he, turning to me. We are much obliged to you, Miss Hunter, for falling in with our whims so far as to cut your hair. I assure you it is not detracted in the tiniest iota from your appearance. We shall now see how the electric blue dress will become you. You will find it laid out upon the bed in your room, and if you would be so good as to put it on, we shall be both extremely obliged. The dress which I found waiting for me was a peculiar shade of blue. It was of excellent material, a sort of beige, but it bore unmistakable signs of having been worn before. It could not have been a better fit if I had been measured for it. Both Mr. and Mrs. Rucastle expressed a delight at the look of it, which seemed quite exaggerated in its vehemence. They were waiting for me in the drawing-room, which is a very large room, stretched across the front of the house, with three long windows reaching down to the floor. A chair had been placed close to the central window with its back turned towards it. In this I was asked to sit, and Mr. Rucastle, walking up and down on the other side of the room, began to tell me a series of the funniest stories I have ever listened to. You cannot imagine how comical he was and how I laughed till I was quite weary. Mrs. Rucastle, however, who evidently has no sense of humor, never so much as smiled, but sat with her hands in her lap and a sad, anxious look on her face. After an hour or so, Mr. Rucastle suddenly remarked it was time to commence the duties of the day, and I might change my dress and go to little Edward in the nursery. Two days later, this same performance was gone through under exact similar circumstances. Again, I changed my dress, and again I sat in the window, and again I laughed very heartily at the funny stories of which my employer had immense repertoire, and which he told intimidably. Then he handed me a yellow-backed novel, and, moving my chair a little sideways that my own shadow might not fall upon the page, he begged me to read aloud to him. I read for about ten minutes, beginning in the heart of a chapter, and then suddenly, in the middle of a sentence, he ordered me to cease and to change my dress. You can easily imagine, Mr. Holmes, how curious I became as to what the meaning of this extraordinary performance could possibly be. They were always very careful, I observed, to turn my face away from the window, so I became consumed with a desire to see what was going on behind my back. At first it seemed to be impossible, but I soon devised a means. My hand mirror had been broken, so a happy thought seized me, and I concealed a piece of the glass in my handkerchief. On the next occasion, in the midst of my laughter, I put my handkerchief up to my eyes and was able to, with a little management, to see all there was behind me. I confess I was disappointed. There was nothing. At least, that was my first impression. 
At the second glance, however, I perceived there was a man standing in Southampton Road, a small, bearded man in a grey suit, who seemed to be looking in my direction. The road is an important highway, and there are usually people there. This man, however, was leaning against the railing which bordered the R-field and was looking earnestly up. I lowered my handkerchief and glanced at Mrs. Rucastle to find her eye fixed upon me with a most searching gaze. She said nothing, but I am convinced she had divined that I had a mirror in my hand and had seen what was behind me. She rose at once. Jeffro, she said, there is an impertinent fellow upon the road there who stares at Miss Hunter. No friend of yours, Miss Hunter, he asked. No, I know no one in these parts. Dear me, how very impertinent. Kindly turn round and motion for him to go away. Surely it would be better to take no notice? No, no, we should not have him loitering here anyways. Kindly turn round and wave him away like that. I did as I was told, and at the same instant, Mrs. Rucastle drew down the blind. That was a week ago, and from that time I have not sat again in the window, nor have I worn the blue dress, nor seen the man in the road. Pray, continue, said Holmes. Your narrative promises to be a most interesting one. You will find it rather disconnected, I fear, and there may prove to be little relation between the different incidents of which I speak. On the very first day that I was at the Copper Beaches, Mr. Rucastle took me to a small outhouse which stands near the kitchen door. As we approached it, I heard the sharp rattling of a chain and the sounds as a large animal moving about. Look in there, said Mr. Rucastle, showing me a slip between two planks. Is he not a beauty? I looked through and was conscious of two glowing eyes and of the vague figure huddled in the darkness. Don't be frightened, my employer said, laughing at the start which I had given. It's only Carlo, my mastiff. I call him mine, but really old taller. My groom is the only man who can do anything with him. We feed him once a day and not too much, so he always is as keen as mustard. Taller lets him loose every night, and God help the trespasser whom he lays his fangs upon. For goodness sake, don't you ever on any pretext set your foot out over the threshold at night, for it's as much as your life is worth. The warning was no idle one, for two days later I happened to look out my bedroom window at about two o'clock in the morning. It was a beautiful moonlit night, and the lawn in front of the house was silvered over and almost as bright as day. I was standing, wrapped in the peaceful beauty of the scene, when I was aware that something was moving under the window of the copper beeches. As it emerged into the moonshine, I saw what it was. It was a giant dog, large as a calf, tawny-tinted, with hanging jowl, black muzzle, and the huge projecting bones. It walked slowly across the lawn and vanished into the shadow upon the other side. That dreadful sentinel sent a chill to my heart, which I do not think any burglar could have done. And now I have a very strange experience to tell you. I had, as you know, cut off my hair in London, and I had placed it in a great coil at the bottom of my trunk. One evening, as the child was in bed, I began to amuse myself by examining the furniture of my room and by rearranging all my little things. There was an old chest of drawers in the room, the two upper ones empty and open, the third one locked. I had filled the first two with my linen, and I had so much to pack away, I was naturally annoyed at not having the use of the third drawer. It struck me they might have been fastened by a mere oversight, so I took out my bunch of keys and tried to open it. The first key fitted to perfection, and I drew the drawer open. There was only one thing in it, but I am sure you will never guess what it was. It was my coil of hair. I took it up and examined it. It was of the same peculiar tint, the same thickness. But then the impossibility of the thing obtrude itself upon me. How could my hair have been locked in the drawer? With trembling hands, I did my trunk, turned out the contents, and drew from the bottom my own hair. I laid the two tresses together, and I assure you they were identical. 
Was it not extraordinary? Puzzle as I would, I could make nothing of at all of what it meant. I returned the strange hair to the drawer, and I said nothing of the matter to the Rucastles, as I felt that I put myself in the wrong by opening a drawer which they had locked. I am naturally observant, as you may have remarked, Mr. Holmes, and I soon had a pretty good plan of the whole house in my head. There was one wing, however, which appeared not to be inhabited at all. A door which faced that, which led to the quarters of the tallers, opened into this suite, but it was invariably locked. One day, however, as I ascended the stair, I met Mr. Rucastle coming out through this door, his keys in his hand, and a look on his face which made him a very different person in the round, jovial man to whom I was accustomed. His cheeks were red, his brow all crinkled with anger, and the veins stood out on his temples with passion. He locked the door and hurried past me without a word or a look. This aroused my curiosity, so I went out for a walk in the grounds with my charge. I strolled around to the side from which I could see the windows of this part of the house. There were four of them in a row, three of which were simply dirty, while the fourth was shuttered up. They were evidently all deserted. As I strolled up and down, glancing at them occasionally, Mr. Rucastle came out to me, looking as merry and jovial as ever. "'Ah,' he said, "'you must not think me rude if I passed you without word, my dear young lady. I was preoccupied with business matters.' I assured him I was not offended." "'By the way,' said I, "'you seem to have quite a suite of spare rooms up there, "'and one of them has the shutters up.' "'He looked surprised, and, as it seemed to me, "'a little startled at my remark. "'Photography is one of my hobbies,' said he. "'I have made my dark room up there, "'but, dear me, what an observant young lady we have come upon. "'Who would have believed it? "'Who would have believed it?' "'He spoke in a jesting tone, "'but there was no jest in his eyes as he looked at me. "'I read suspicion from there.' an annoyance, but not jest. Well, Mr. Holmes, from the moment that I understood there was something about that suite of rooms I was not to know, I was all on fire to go over them. It was not mere curiosity, though I have my share of that. It was a feeling of duty, a feeling that some good might come from my penetrating to this place. They talk of woman's instinct, perhaps it was woman's instinct which gave me that feeling. At any rate, it was there, and I was keenly on the lookout for any chance to pass the forbidden door. It was only yesterday that the chance came. I may tell you that, besides Mr. Rucastle, both Toller and his wife find something to do in these deserted rooms, and I once saw him carrying a large black linen bag with him through the door. Recently he has been drinking hard, and yesterday evening he was very drunk. When I came upstairs there was a key in the door. I have no doubt at all he had left it there. Mr. and Mrs. Rucastle were both downstairs, and the child was with them, so I had an admirable opportunity." I turned the key gently in the lock, opened the door, and slipped through. There was a little passage in front of me, unpapered and uncarpeted, which turned at a right angle at the farther end. Round this corner were three doors in a line, the first and third of which were open. They each led into an empty room, with two windows in one and one in the other, so thick with dirt that the evening light glimmered dimly through them. The center door was closed, and across the outside of it had been fastened one of the broad bars of an iron bed padlocked at one end to a ring in the wall, fastened at the other with a stout cord. The door itself was locked as well, and the key was not there. This barricaded door corresponded clearly with the shuttered window outside, and yet I could see by the glimmer from beneath it the room was not in darkness. Evidently there was a skylight which let in light from above. As I stood in the passage gazing at the sinister door and wondering what secret it might veil, I suddenly heard the sound of steps within the room and saw a shadow pass backwards and forwards against the little slit of dim light which shone out from under the door. A mad, unreasoning terror rose up in me at that sight, Mr. Holmes. 
My overstrung nerves failed me suddenly, and I turned and ran, ran as though some dreadful hand were behind me, clutching at the skirt of my dress. I rushed down the passage, through the door, and straight into the arms of Mr. Rucastle, who was waiting outside. So, he said, smiling, it was you then. I thought it must be when I saw the door open. Oh, I'm so frightened, I panted. My dear young lady, my dear young lady, you cannot think how caressing and soothing his voice was. And what has frightened you, my dear young lady? But his voice was just a little too coaxing. He overdid it. I was keenly on my guard against him. I was foolish enough to go into the empty wing, I answered, but it is so lonely and eerie in this dim light. I was frightened and I ran out again. Oh, it's so dreadfully still in there. Only that, he said, looking at me keenly. Why, what did you think, I asked. Why did you think I locked this door? I'm sure I don't know. It is to keep people out who have no business there. Do you see? He was still smiling in the most amiable manner. I am sure if I'd known. Well, then you now know. And if you ever put your foot over that threshold again. Here, in an instant, the smile hardened into a grin of rage, and he glared down at me with the face of a demon. I'll throw you to the mastiff. I was so terrified, I did not know what I did. I suppose that I must have rushed past him into my room. I remember nothing until I found myself lying on my bed, trembling all over. Then I thought of you, Mr. Holmes. I could not live there longer without some advice. I was frightened of the house, of the man, of the woman, of the servants, even of the child. They were horrible to me. If I could only bring you down here, all would be well. Of course, I might have fled from the house, but my curiosity was almost as strong as my fears. My mind was soon made up. I would send you a wire I put on my hat and cloak, went down to the office, which is about half a mile from the house, and then returned, feeling very much easier. A horrible doubt came into my mind as I approached the door, lest the dog might be loose, but I remember that Toller had drunk himself into a state of insensibility that evening, and I knew he was the only one in the household who had any influence with the savage creature, or whom would venture to set him free. I slipped into safety, and lay half awake in the night in my joy at the thought of seeing you. I had no difficulty in getting leave to come into Winchester this morning, but I must be back before three o'clock, for Mr. and Mrs. Rucastle are going on a visit, and will be away all the evening so I must look after the child. Now, I have told you all my adventures, Mr. Holmes, and I should be very glad if you could tell me what it all means and, above all, what I should do. Holmes and I had listened, spellbound, to this extraordinary story. My friend now rose and paced up and down the room, his hands in his pockets, and an expression of the most profound gravity upon his face. Is Taller still drunk? he asked. Yes, I heard his wife tell Mrs. Rucastle she could do nothing with him. That is well, and the Rucastles go out tonight. Yes. Is there a cellar with a good strong lock? Yes, the wine cellar. You seem to me to have acted all through this matter like a brave and sensible girl, Miss Hunter. Do you think you could perform one more feat? I should not ask it of you if I did not think you quite an exceptional woman. I shall try. What is it? We shall be at the Copper Beaches by seven o'clock, my friend and I. The Rucastles will be gone by that time, and Toller will, we hope, be incapable. There only remains Mrs. Toller, who might give the alarm. If you could send her into the cellar on some errand and then turn the key upon her, I, you would facilitate matters immensely. I will do it. Excellent. We shall look thoroughly into the affair. Of course, there is only one feasible explanation. You have been brought there to personate someone, 
and the real person is imprisoned in this chamber. That's obvious. As to who this prisoner is, I have no doubt that it is the daughter, Ms. Alice Rucastle, if I remember right, who is said to have gone to America. You were chosen, doubtless, as resembling her in height, figure, and the color of your hair. Hers had been cut off, very possibly in some illness through which she had passed, and so, of course, yours had to be sacrificed also. By a curious chance, you came upon her tresses. The man in the road was undoubtedly some friend of hers, possibly a fiancé, and no doubt, as you wore the girl's dress and were so like her, he was convinced from your laughter, whether he saw you and afterwards from your gesture, that Miss Rucastle was perfectly happy that she had no longer desired his attentions. The dog is let loose at night to prevent him from endeavoring to communicate with her. So much is fairly clear. The most serious point in this case is the disposition of the child. What on earth does that have to do with it? I ejaculated. My dear Watson, you as a medical man are continually gaining light as tendencies of a child by the study of the parents. Don't you see the converse is equally valid? I have frequently gained my first real insight into the character of parents by studying their children. This child's disposition is abnormally cruel, merely for cruelty's sake, and whether he derives this from his smiling father, as I should suspect, or from his mother, it bodes evil for the poor girl who is in their power. I'm sure that you're right, Mr. Holmes, cried our client. A thousand things come back to me, which makes me certain you have hit on it. Oh, well, let us not lose an instant in bringing help to this poor creature. We must be circumspect, for we are dealing with a very cunning man. We can do nothing until seven o'clock. At that hour, we shall be with you. It will not be long before we solve this mystery. We were as good as our word, for it was just seven when we reached the Copper Beaches, having put up our trap at a wayside public house. The group of trees, with their dark leaves shining like burnished metal in the light of the setting sun, were sufficient to mark the house, even had Miss Hunter not been standing smiling in the doorstep. "'Have you managed it?' asked Holmes. A loud, thudding noise came from somewhere downstairs. "'That is Mrs. Toller in the cellar,' said she. Her husband lies snoring on the kitchen rug. Here are his keys, which are the duplicates of Mr. Rucastle's. "'You have done well indeed,' cried Holmes with enthusiasm. "'Now lead the way, and we shall soon see to the end of this black business.' We passed upon the stair, unlocked the door, followed on down a passage, and found ourselves in front of the barricade which Miss Hunter had described. Holmes cut the cord and removed the transverse bar. Then he tried the various keys in the lock, but without success. No sound came from within, and at the silence Holmes' face clouded over. "'I trust we're not too late,' he said. "'I think, Miss Hunter, that we had better go in without you. "'Now, Watson, put your shoulder to it, "'and we shall see whether we cannot make our own way in.' "'It was an old, rickety door, "'and gave at once before our united strength. "'Together we rushed into the room. "'It was empty. "'There was no furniture save a little pallet bed, "'a small table, and a basket of linen. "'The skylight above was open, and the prisoner gone.' "'There's been some villainy here,' said Holmes. "'This beauty has guessed Miss Hunter's intentions "'and has carried his victim off. "'But how? Through this skylight. "'We shall soon see how he managed it.' "'He swung himself up onto the roof. "'Ah, yes,' he cried. "'Here's the end of a long, light ladder against the eaves. "'That's how he did it.' "'But that's impossible,' said Miss Hunter. "'The ladder was not there when the Rucastles went away. "'He's come back and done it. I tell you, he's a dangerous and clever man. I should not be very surprised. If this were he who step I now here upon the stair, I think, Watson, that it would be well for you to have your pistol ready.' The words were hardly out of his mouth before a man appeared at the door of the room, a fat and burly man with a heavy stick in his hand. Miss Hunter screamed and shrunk against the wall at the sight of him, but Sherlock Holmes sprang forward and confronted him. "'You villain!' said he. "'Where's your daughter?' 
The fat man cast his eyes round and then up at the open skylight. It is for me to ask you that, he shrieked. You thieves, spies, and thieves. I have caught you, have I? You're in my power. I'll serve you. He turned and clattered down the stairs as hard as he could go. He's gone for the dog, cried Miss Hunter. I have my revolver, said I. Better close the front door, cried Holmes, and we all rushed down the stairs together. We had hardly reached the hall when we heard the baying of a hound and then a scream of agony with a horrible worrying sound which was dreadful to listen to. An elderly man with a red face and shaking limbs came staggering out a side door. My God, he cried, someone has loosed the dog. It's not been fed for two days. Quick, quicker, it'll be too late. Holmes and I rushed out and round the angle of the house with Toller hurrying behind us. There was a huge famished brute, its black muzzle buried in Rucastle's throat, while he writhed and screamed upon the ground. Running up, I blew its brains out, and it fell over with a keen white teeth still meeting in the great creases of his neck. With much labor, we separated them and carried him, living but horribly mangled, into the house. We laid him upon the drawing-room sofa, and having dispatched the sober taller to bear the news to his wife, I did what I could to relieve the pain. We were all assembled round him when the door opened and a tall, gaunt woman entered the room. "'Mrs. Toller,' cried Miss Hunter. "'Yes, Miss. Mr. Rucas let me out when he came back because he went up to you. Ah, Miss, it's a pity you didn't let me know what you were planning, for I would have told you your pains were wasted.' "'Ha!' said Holmes, looking keenly at her. "'It is clear that Mrs. Toller knows more about this matter than anyone else.' "'Yes, sir, I do, and I'm ready enough to tell what I know.' Then pray sit down and let us hear it, for there are several points on which I must confess that I am still in the dark. I will soon make it clear to you, said she. I'd have done so before now if I could have got out of the cellar. If there's police court business over this, you'll remember that I was the one that stood your friend, that I was Miss Alice's friend, too. She was never happy at home, Miss Alice wasn't, from the time that her father married again. She was slighted like and had no say in anything, but it was never really became bad for her until after she met Mr. Fowler at a friend's house, as well as I could learn, Miss Alice had rights of her own by will, but she was so quiet and patient she was that she never said a word about them, but just left everything in Mr. Rucastle's hands. He knew he was safe with her, but when there was a chance of a husband coming forward who would ask for all that the law would give him, then her father thought it time to put a stop to it. He wanted her to sign a paper, so then whether she married or not, he could use her money. When she wouldn't do it, he kept on worrying her until she got brain fever, and for six weeks was at death's door. And then she got better at last, all worn to a shadow, and with her beautiful hair cut off. But that didn't make no change in her young man, and he stuck to her as true as a man could be. Ah, said Holmes, I think what you have been good enough to tell us makes the matter fairly clear, and that I can deduce all that remains. Mr. Rucastle, then, I presume, took to the system of imprisonment. Yes, sir, and brought Miss Hunter down from London in order to get rid of the disagreeable persistence of Mr. Fowler. That is it, sir. But Mr. Fowler, being a persevering man and a good seaman should be, blockaded the house, and having met you succeeded by certain arguments, metallic or otherwise, in convincing you your interest were the same as his. Mr. Fowler was a very kind-spoken, free-handed gentleman, said Mrs. Toller, serenely. And in this way he managed that your good man should have no want of drink, and that a ladder should be ready at the moment when your master had gone out. You have it, sir, just as it happened." "'I am sure we owe you an apology, Mrs. Toller,' said Holmes, "'for you have certainly cleared up everything which puzzled us. "'And here comes the country surgeon and Mrs. Rucastle, "'so I think, Watson, we best escort Miss Hunter back to Winchester, "'as it seems to me our locus standee is now rather a questionable one.' 
and thus was solved the mystery of the sinister house with the copper beeches in front of the door. Mr. Rucastle survived, but was always a broken man, kept alive solely through the care of his devoted wife. They still live with their old servants, who probably know so much of Rucastle's past life that he finds it difficult to part from them. Mr. Fowler and Ms. Rucastle were married by special license in Southampton the day after their flight, and he is now a holder of a government appointment on the island of Mauritius. As to Miss Violet Hunter, my friend Holmes, rather to my disappointment, manifested no further interest in her once she had ceased to be the center of one of his problems, and she is now the head of a private school at Walsall, where I believe she has met with some considerable success. Thanks for listening. Read more about this week's narrator in the show notes, and join us in two weeks for our discussion of the story. You can send your thoughts to howeverimprobablepod at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at ImprobablePod and our website, howeverimprobablepodcast.com. If you enjoy the show and can spare a moment, please rate and review. However Improbable is created by Marissa Vicario and Sarah Kolb, with apologies to Arthur Conan Doyle. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, dear listeners, believe us to be very sincerely yours.